On December 2nd, 2019, the news broke that writer and Star Trek luminary Dorothy D.C. Fontana had passed away. Fontana was one of the first writers brought on by Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry to help him run this new show. Over the three-year run of the series, she would contribute a number of its best and most well-remembered episodes, including Charlie X, This Side of Paradise, Tomorrow is Yesterday and Journey to Babel. She had numerous other contributions to Star Trek as well, either under her pseudonym, Michael Richards, or as an uncredited rewriter. This included a script polish of The City on the Edge of Forever, generally regarded to be Star Trek's best episode. She was the showrunner for the Star Trek animated series, again writing its best episode, Yesteryear, as well as contributing to Star Trek The Next Generation, including the pilot episode, Encounter at Farpoint. She also has credits on a number of the Trek video games, and even one episode of the fan-produced Star Trek New Voyages, writing the episode To Serve All My Days, which saw Walter Koenig return to the role of Mr. Chakoff. In between Star Treks, Fontana contributed to War of the Worlds, Book Rogers in the 25th Century, the TV version of Logan's Run, Earth Final Conflict, and Babylon 5. Two of her most unsung contributions to genre television, however, came in her scripts for the Six Million Dollar Man. He looks good at Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. We can make him better than he was. Better, stronger, faster. three successful telefilms, The Six Million Dollar Man was rushed into production in the winter of 1973 for a January 1974 start date, and as such, the first season only has 13 episodes. For all that, or maybe because of it, the first season has quite a high batting average. The first season is darker than subsequent seasons, more adult. Well, adult by the standards of the time, anyway, and the scripts aren't as familiar or as dumbed down as they would become later. Viewers new to the show will be surprised that a few of the trappings that we remember from the series, such as the bionic sound effects, <laughs> whenever Steve did something bionic-y, aren't present. And there is more attention to detail, such as Steve Austin, the titular bionic man played by Lee Majors, only sweating under his real arm. Fontana wrote two episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man. The first was episode 8 of season 1, The Rescue of Athena 1, directed by Lawrence Doheny and erring on the 15th of March 1974. The episode is best remembered for featuring a major role for Major's then-wife, blonde bombshell and the premier 70s sex symbol Farrah Fawcett Majors as Major Kelly Wood. 
In the cold open, Steve is training Kelly, but he's a massive dick. The camera angles are chosen to deliberately obscure that Kelly is a woman astronaut, and that they are in a training capsule rather than a real mission. But irrespective of who he's training, he's not a particularly good teacher. He's yelling, he offers no positive reinforcement at all, focusing only on the negative, and doesn't even mention that this is a good opportunity to learn from the mistakes that just happened. He acts like this is a real mission, and that Kelly just killed millions of people. He even ends the teaser by asking, Yeah, how do I get fired off this job? To be fair to Steve, he makes no mention of Kelly being a woman, so the implication is he'd be a dickhead to whoever he was teaching. It turns out that Oscar Goldman is who he'd have to speak to, played as ever by permatanned Richard Anderson. Oscar tells Steve, that's a negative. Major Woods is the first woman in space, and as such this mission is priority one. Steve, as the last man to walk on the moon, is the perfect candidate to help Major Woods with her mission and ensure a safe journey and return. Fontana is clearly playing up Steve's slight sexism. And it is slight. There's no indication Steve thinks she'd be any worse an astronaut than a man, but he's clearly been set up to learn a lesson as the story continues. The duo are required to be interviewed on television by real-life science correspondent Jules Bergman, and so they call a truce. During the interview, Steve mentions that they have no desire to lose anyone in space, especially a woman, and Kelly bristles as if losing her makes her more special or more delicate than a man. It's a subtle but nice performance from Fawcett. Whilst leaving the studio, however, a camera light falls and Steve catches it with one hand. Ignoring that knowledge of his bionics requires a level 6 clearance, he tells Kelly, who witnesses the entire event, everything. Steve, those lights weigh a ton. Oh, they do? And you caught it with one arm. How? Well, two hands are for beginners. Sorry, Colonel. You don't get off that easy. Right, you heard about the crash I had a while back. Yes. It was a lot worse than the press release said it was. Rudy Wells was the chief surgeon on the project. I, uh, well, I was the project. When it was over, I was a little better than before. Come on. Steve then opens a rather heavy studio door with more force than necessary. This was a nice touch. Apparently Steve is still getting used to his bionic. Kelly tells him... You can open doors for me anytime. Which is a wonderfully subtle piece of foreshadowing from Fontana. The mission launches without a hitch, but there's a minor explosion in the capsule as it reaches space. It's bad enough to render Kelly's co-pilot, Osterman, unconscious, and it is decided to send Athena-1 to Skylab, where it can wait for a rescue capsule. Sadly, Athena-1's escape hatch is jammed, trapping Kelly and Osterman, and only Steve's bionics could save the day. Oscar agrees to let Steve go on the mission, but is concerned that this may jeopardise Steve's top-secret status. Steve asks Oscar if the secret is worth the lives of the astronauts, and Oscar doesn't answer. This nicely showed the darker side of Oscar Goldman that he inherited from Oliver Spencer, Steve's original boss who was played in the pilot by Darren McGavin. Spencer was a much harsher boss than Oscar would become, and he was far away from what we describe as a friend to Steve. Oscar was toned down considerably over the next few episodes, but his lack of a clear answer here shows an edge to the character that I would have liked to have seen carry on. 
The show is also a blatant plug for NASA, and I can see no fault with that. One of the things I loved about The Six Million Dollar Man as a kid, and something I really appreciate as an adult, is its devotion to the space programme, to science, to promoting smart people doing smart things, doing difficult jobs. I much prefer that kids be looking up to astronauts and scientists than reality TV stars like famous waste of skin Gemma Collins. Steve journeys out to Skylab and uses his bionic arm to release the hatch. However, the lab has to be operational to allow a doctor who has accompanied Steve to operate on Osterman. The operation is not easy, as you might expect, with a metal fragment having lodged in Osterman's chest. The doctor says that to attempt re-entry with Osterman in this condition would disturb the sliver, severing Osterman's aorta. The doctor, therefore, has to operate before they can even attempt to return to Earth. Fontana was excellent at slowly escalating the problems the characters had to resolve, adding more and more problems upon Stephen Kelly and forcing them to make tough life-and-death decisions, harkening back to the beginning of the episode and Steve's rather harsh but accurate lecture. Steve is having his own problems. An earlier episode of the show established a weakness in Steve's bionics to extreme cold, and as Khan once pointed out, it is very cold in space. Steve finds his implants malfunctioning, making his job that much harder. I once found this to be a tad silly, but having been in Norway and seeing how the cold affected my phone, I now found this to be quite a realistic limitation on the technology. Majors was a very stoic actor, more along the lines of Robert Mitchum and Clint Eastwood, less likely to emote. However, he does a good job of showing his annoyance at his condition through simple expressions and eyebrow raises. Majors may not have been the best actor in the world, but he has moments where his less is more approach works exceptionally well. As you may expect, the episode is chock full of stock footage, but it's all well used, with only a few minor errors in matching the actors with the stock. Most of it apparently comes from Apollo 13. Kelly even uses Jim Lavelle's famous phrase, Houston, we have a problem, when the explosion happens. In an interview in the Bionic book by Herbie J. Pilato, Fontana said, NASA let us run barefoot through the stock library. It was wonderful, because it was stuff astronauts had actually shot. They even let us use the facility in Downey, California, so we got to use an actual training capsule. Fontana's script is really quite good. There's a heavy emphasis on the science in the fiction, with a lot of attention to detail in the physics and the reality of the situation. The drama is human drama. Put the characters in an extreme situation, pump up the drama incrementally, giving the characters more and more problems to solve and see how they deal with them. It's a really well-designed, structured and written script, and the highlight of the season. It's not at all formulaic, it's not silly sci-fi, but a good adult drama with a quite sedate pace. But crucially, I never found it boring. Well, as an adult. As a kid, I would imagine this episode was not a favourite. Steve's bionic malfunctions continue, meaning Kelly has to take on the role of pilot in a manual re-entry, something she hasn't really trained for, and the point of the episode. Kudos to the casting of Fawcett in this role. While she is undeniably beautiful, she hadn't yet reached the status of major sex symbol, so her casting here, whilst obviously smelling a little of nepotism, is actually rather interesting. At no point in the show is Kelly eye candy, or though simply for show, 
Fawcett wears sensible clothing, including a spacesuit throughout most of the episode. She is portrayed as a competent, efficient and capable astronaut without making the male figure look weak or useless. Fawcett isn't quite the actor she would become with maturity, but she's convincing enough, and at no point does it feel as bad as casting Denise Richards as a rocket scientist or Meg Ryan as an embittered pilot. Granted, her makeup is always flawless, but at least she has sensible her. The episode does a good job of raising the tension in its final act, with lots of shots of sweaty NASA executives in the control room, Oscar pacing up and down and smoking, something that was canned as the series became more kid-friendly, and the USS Kitty Hawk waiting for them at the splashdown point. It's an off-concept episode, in that it isn't Steve's bionics that save the day. In fact, they become a hindrance. Without them, Steve would have been fine. Granted, he wouldn't have been able to open Athena One's entry door, but other than that, you know. The story's about the human spirit, that indefinable need we have as humans to explore, to better ourselves and to face adversity and conquer it. This is a great episode of The Six Million Dollar Man, and a particular favourite of mine. It doesn't appear to be that well-loved in the fan community, but I wonder if that's for all the reasons I love it. It's a very different kind of episode, very thoughtful and meditative, with little in the way of bionic action. At this point in the series, Steve was still a character with frailties and doubts. He was superhuman, but the emphasis was on human. The quiet moment at the end, where he ponders that because of his bionics, he can't do what he really loves, be an astronaut, is really affecting. Without his bionics, he'd be dead. But there is a price to be paid, and not just the six million dollars it cost to rebuild him. In its early days, the six million dollar man was very much like a period-appropriate Marvel comic. The characters were more important than the plot. As it went along, it became more of a period-appropriate DC comic, plot over character. Steve became infallible, but in this and other early episodes, he has moments of doubt and reflection. It makes him a more interesting relatable character. There is no denying that Fontana wrote a brilliant script here, containing this great in-joke. Space. It is the final frontier. And it was a joy to revisit. This is not the six million dollar man you remember. This is better. Sadly, Farrah Fawcett would pass away of cancer on June 25th, 2009, aged just 62 years old. Her passing was overshadowed by the death of Michael Jackson on the same day, but for some of us, hers was a far more tragic loss. She and Mages remained on speaking terms, despite their separation and subsequent divorce, with her making a cameo appearance in the pilot episode of his subsequent series, The Fall Guy, and she would be referenced directly in the opening theme song. DC Fontana returned to the series for the second season episode, Straight On Till Morning, again directed by Lawrence Doheny and airing on November 8th, 1974, as the sixth episode of the season. The first thing we notice about this episode is the opening titles of Evolved, becoming the one we all remember from childhood. It's longer than the first season titles, adding the wireframe graphics depicting Austin's new arm, legs and eye. Trivia note, the leg seen operated on was actually a cast of Clint Eastwood's leg used for the film The Beguiled. The voiceover is also slightly different and the musical sting longer. 
Have a listen. Looks good in there, Sean. BCS arm switch is on. Okay, Victor. Landing rocket arm switch is on. Here comes the throttle. Circuit breakers in. We have separation. Roger. Inboard now. Boards are on. We're coming forward with the side snake. Well, looks good. Uh, Roger. I'm going to blow out. Paper three. Get your pitch to zero. Pitch is out. I can't hold altitude. Correction. Alpha hold is off. Prep selector is emergency. Flight calm. I can't hold it. She's breaking up. She's breaking. Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man. Better than he was before. Better, stronger, Whilst at the Cape helping out with a launch, Steve witnesses a UFO sighting. Typically, no one believes him, even though reports have come in from across the country. Oscar, I've been on the phone with people from three other towns besides Denbo. They all saw a shooting star. A UFO! Steve, while you were on the telephone last night, I was sleeping, and my head is clear enough to know that radar and mission control does not lie. Oscar, I know what I saw. And to top it off, I talked to a deputy sheriff in Denbo who said something strange happened there early this morning. Will you have breakfast with me so I can tell you the different reasons why it can't be a UFO? Oscar, it was a UFO. Now, I saw the same kind of lights three years ago when I was on a space shot. Steve, I need you here. I'll try and be back before the launch, huh? Steve follows the breadcrumbs to a small town where a man reported his clothes being stolen off a washing line. And when he approached the thief, he was hurt by simply touching the man. Steve is intrigued and uses NASA and his OSI credentials to piggyback the police investigation. Local police locate the thief along with three other allies, but when they try to arrest them, they also touch one of the thieves and the policeman falls to the floor. The rest of the posse give chase. Meg Foster, a beautiful actress with the most amazing blue eyes, is perfectly cast here as an alien named Minoni, and it turns out that the four beings are family and have inadvertently crashed on Earth, like a reverse lost in space. They mean no harm and even tried to communicate with the police. Fontana is clearly bringing the Trek philosophy of coexistence and communication with her. Steve is much more reasonable here than in the prior episode. He never jumps to any conclusions about the aliens, rather he's driven by his need to A. prove what he saw, but B. help. The aliens manage to ditch the posse, but Steve, with his bionic eye, isn't as easy to deceive. The chase is well realised and very visual, with more bionics in this one scene than in the entirety of The Rescue of Athena 1. Realising that the men are out to hurt them, the aliens try to lose Steve, but thanks to his bionic skill, he tracks them down. Do not touch us. I understand. Just touching one of you leaves the radiation burns. Yes. We did not mean to harm anyone. There's something in the body chemistry. 
We are dangerous to your kind. I was in space once. I've often thought that there was life on other planets. You are very curious about us, about our life, our secrets. Yes. If I'm going to help you, there can't be secrets. There's nothing you can do for us. We're going to die in this strange place. Maybe there is something. Eamon says you are not like other humans. Look at me. Yes. I feel the scars of your accident. They rebuilt your body. You are more than human. Bionic. I'm not so sure I'm comfortable with your telepathy. Yes, this is disturbing to you. And yet all that I can read is good. That you will somehow protect us. I'll try. If you will wait outside, I will tend my family. I do not know what sickness they have. Steve takes his time getting to know the strange beings. They are family, mother, father and two children, albeit children in what we would consider their early 20s. The makeup of the aliens is limited but effective. There's a silver sheen to their faces and her, and they all have the her scraped back. Learning they are simply survivors of a crash, Steve is determined to help them get back home. Minoni tells Steve their location in space, and he looks up, saying, First star on the right, and straight on, till morning. Character in the drama says the title, Take a Drink. <sighs> Steve's humanism is on full display here. He's just a decent man, and apparently that's corny nowadays. He wants to help these people for no other reason than it's the right thing to do. In an era where we've been let down constantly by the people in charge, people who show open contempt for certain segments of society, or whose entire reason for being is self-interest, I feel quite happy to have grown up watching a man who is a decent person, capable of great deeds of kindness. The Marvel movies have shown us that this kind of hero isn't outmoded, and whilst the Steve Austin of Martin Caden's novels was a tad rougher around the edges, the TV show version was kinder. As the show became more kid-orientated, it lost some of its bite. But if the trade-off was a hero who respected and cared about others, then I can't really say that it was a bad thing. Even here, Fontana is clear to show that not all of humanity are shining examples of nobility, although crucially, she also allows all of the police posse to realise the mistake later in the episode. The posse is hunting the aliens, and even Steve has a hard time keeping them off the scent, especially after Minoni loses her parents and her brother due to contact with humans. With all this being said about Steve's humanism, he's still rather cold when Minoni's brother dies, acknowledging that they need to use the time his death has bought them to get away. Steve can also help Minoni, as his bionics allow her to stay with him and touch him, crucially without him falling ill. During this action beat at the end, there has to have been a cut scene. 
as Steve and Minoni run away, Minoni's hair ceases to be in a scraped back bun and is now loose around her shoulders, but this happens in between shots. One minute she's running alongside a silo, her up, then as she runs up the ladders to the right of the silo, her hair is down. Maybe she just felt like a change. Steve's plan is rather straightforward. Does the saving of one life mean anything to your people? Yes. Great deal. Good. Yours is the one we're going to save. Give me the celestial location, and I'll point the laser at the ship. But I don't understand. The ship will leave without me. We're going to tell them that you're on your way. But I have no way to get back to my people. Yes, you do. But first, punch out the location. Okay, now tell them that in exactly 24 hours, an Earth capsule will pass behind the dark side of the moon. At that point, they will be able to intercept the capsule. And I will be in that capsule. You will be in that capsule. That's not going to happen, Steve. Finish the message. Steve, finish the message. For in your lunar probe capsule. We're going to send it back home. I know what's been going on here. Do you ask? I know that four of them landed in a craft that went down at sea. I know that one of them died and disappeared. I know that if anyone touches them, they'll suffer extreme radiation burns and shock. And I know that we can't let any of them escape. When you turned on the laser, he knew where we were. He's had the building surrounded by guards. Don't you know what we can learn here? By studying her, what we can learn? There are no more of them, Oscar. She's the only one left. All the more reason why we shouldn't let her escape. Oscar, they came here in peace to see if they could survive on our planet. They can't. I'm not interested in their motives. I'm interested in the science. I'm interested in knowledge. Look, I'm not going to hurt her. All I want to do is learn from her. I want to study her. Don't you understand that? Oh, I understand you, but I'm not going to let you do it. Look, we've already killed her parents and her brother. And she's all that's left, Oscar. She's not going to be our guinea pig. Steve. Oscar, do you know how we killed her parents? With just the touch of our hand, that's all. Just the touch of a human hand. Steve is an astronaut, so he's not a thicko. He's well-versed in science, but above all, he's a believer in life. Oscar displays his harder edge again, arguing for keeping her prisoner and studying her, but Steve argues that she's a life form and deserving of respect. If they keep her here, she'll die. Oscar, against his better judgment, capitulates to Steve's wishes. It is good that no one else will know of my existence. Do you understand now why I must try to go back? Yes. You are polite. You don't understand. No. But you sacrifice your needs for your friend. We're getting there. We'll be up there someday, where your people are. the chances of her making it back to her ship about a million to one. Oh, Oscar, stop being such a downer. 
Steve alters the capsule, making room for Minoni by removing some redundant systems. He then stashes away before the capsule can be launched on its scheduled mission. Interestingly, some of the stock footage of the command centre is from the rescue of Athena 1. Given the separation of seasons and the number of episodes since, they presumably never thought anyone would notice. In a nice piece of detail, Command mentions the slight differential in weight, which gives Steve a momentary pause. But the launch is well within safety parameters and goes ahead. Require acquisition of signal now. It's not there. We've lost it. Well, what happened? Are you getting any readings? Malfunction of systems? What? Anything? It could have crashed. We couldn't have lost it. Wait a minute, I'm getting a signal. A faint signal. Uh, It's, it's stopped. It's gone. What was it, Mac? Doesn't make any sense. It sounded like uh, straight on till morning. Something like that. I don't understand. I don't know how it could have happened, Mr. Goldwyn. I don't know how we lost it, but we did. Oh, that's all right, Mac. That happens sometimes. The final scene is quite sweet from Steve's point of view, but Oscar reacts like he recognises the reference to Peter Pan. But he wasn't with Steve when he and Minoni had that conversation. Nevertheless, Straight Until Morning follows Fontana's other script by focusing on the space programme and Steve's first love of being an astronaut. She delivered two of the more literate scripts in the history of the show, both emphasising humanity and human ingenuity, problem solving and man's capacity to be better than he is. Both episodes were a cut above the regular episode of the show, showing more of Steve's character than of his bionics and both were solid stories. Athena 1 was the better of the two, with Morning feeling like it had some padding here and there, but Fontana's emphasis on character was solid throughout. Interestingly, this second show was deep into season 2, and yet we are still denied the regular bionic sound effects when Steve does something cool. The series was still leaning towards being more serious science fiction stories than it would in later years, even though the show had already done killer robots. As the show aged, it would get progressively more out there, with the $7 million man, the bionic woman, bionic kids, bionic dogs, fembots, death probes, and, of course, Bigfoot. Both of Fontana's episodes were nominated for a film con, the Science Fiction Movie Convention Award, and whilst Fontana would win a film con, it would be for the Star Trek animated episode Yesteryear, not her work here. However, both of her episodes would be tied together into one narrative in the Six Million Dollar Man novel The Rescue of Athena One by Mike Jarn. Sadly, whilst I have two of the Six Mill novels, thanks to listener Dan Doherty, this isn't one of them. If I had it, I'd have read it for the show. I'm so dedicated. 
Fontana must have had a reasonably happy experience on Six Mill, as both scripts retain her name rather than her pseudonym, unlike her episode of Book Rogers and even a few Star Treks. Fontana was a trailblazer, one of the first women to achieve mainstream acceptance in a primarily male-dominated field. Her work was crucial to the development not only of Star Trek, but of televised science fiction. She always had decent roles for women, always put character at the forefront of her stories, but always remembered to entertain. There's very little preaching in a Fontana script. Major Kelly Woods, for example, is shown to be more than capable when the chips are down via her deeds, rather than sermonising speeches or overt agenda pushing. There's no doubt that Star Trek is what she'll be remembered for, but there was more to her than just Star Trek. Dorothy Catherine Fontana, March 25th, 1939 to December 2nd, 2019. First star on the right, and straight on till morning. Our first email tonight is Star Trek and AI by Alistair Jakes. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Alistair. Nice to hear from you again. I have now finished watching all three seasons of the original Star Trek of Kirk, and I've just listened to your Ashes of Eden episode. I'm not entirely sure we watched the same series, given how you downplay his womanising and militarism, but then I guess culture exaggerates everything, so we can both be right. You compare Kirk to the caricature. I compare Kirk to Picard in The Next Generation. Well, the the thing with Kirk and Picard is they're two very different captains. I think my main takeaway, having, I'm watching the original series again in the gym, because now that we've got all these wonderful technological devices, I can watch it while I'm exercising, which is great, because it makes the hour go by. And I've been watching a lot of the early shows. And the early shows, the series is an ensemble piece. Sulu and Uhura and all have a lot more to do in the early episodes. And Spock sometimes is just a supplemental character. What I like about Kirk in the early days is he listens to his officers. Even Styles in uh, the episode Balance of Terror. Styles is quite bigoted towards Spock once they see that Romulans look like Vulcans. But even when he makes a suggestion and Sulu backs him up that actually that's not a bad suggestion, Captain, Kirk takes it on board. Picard just kind of regularly disregarded his other officers' thoughts and considerations. And it's not that Picard's worse officer than Kirk. I think in many ways Picard... Picard's who you would want in charge in real life. Picard is who I wish was in charge at the moment. Whereas Kirk's probably a little bit rough around the edges. But Kirk could be every bit the diplomat Picard was. And yeah, I do think his womanising has been played up a lot in recent years. Shatner's novels don't help. But Kirk isn't James Bond. Kirk was a lot more thoughtful and considerate than that. But anyway, Alistair continues. This brings me to Data and the holographic Doctor in Voyager. 
Data is just like any other planet of the weak android in the original series. He even goes evil, and has an evil twin. Which is probably why the Federation is very hesitant to duplicate him. You can argue all you like about the pragmatism of mechanical life on starships, but Data does save their lives multiple times. But the Federation has a lot of experience with how AI can go badly wrong. This is why when you get to the Doctor, you have what was designed to just be a simulation. You are right, Andrew, the Doctor is supposed to be Siri. The emergency medical hologram is not supposed to be sentient. The Federation does not trust mechanical life, and for good reason. They aren't bigoted, they just don't want to play with fire. The issue with the Doctor is that his programming is ridiculously complex and adaptable. It has to be. Doctors in the original series era had to create cures and vaccines in days, and if you are relying on the emergency medical hologram, there will probably be an emergency that requires adapting fast. He couldn't do his job if he just worked off a database. So he learns, and he's left on for long periods of time, because he's the only qualified doctor on the ship. Now, sure, you could treat the inmates like a piece of software, and maybe if you did, he would continue to act like a piece of software. People bond with things, though. Look at how people treat their Roombas, robot vacuum cleaners, and treat them like pets. At the end of the day, Data is alive, as the Doctor is. They're both software. The difference is that Data fits with the original series tropes of life created in a lab, and it may as well be magic, whilst the Doctor is created in a computer by means similar to what people do today to create AI. So it may as well be science. I think you can accept Data because the science of how he functions does not matter. He may as well be an alien who evolved from metal or a person turned into a machine by a witch using magic. The Doctor, however, has the science of his existence integral to his portrayal on the show. You can't pretend he just magically is a person made of metal when every episode insists on reminding you that the Doctor is a hyper-advanced NPC in a video game combined with Siri. I'm not criticising anyone's opinions, these are just my observations. Oh, and I am now watching Star Trek the Animated Series, because if I'm binging Star Trek, then I may as well be a completist. Thank you, Alistair. I, I hope you enjoy the animated series. It is a tad limited by today's standards, that much is certain. But a lot of the stories are quite good. A lot of the stories were written by people who worked on the original show. Um, the novels by Alan Dean Foster, Star Trek Logs 1 through 10, they are all worth investigating as well, because you're not stuck to the limited visuals if you're reading the books. Thank you for emailing in, Alistair. Jack Bone! As emailed in, likewise. Amazing Spider-Man 81. When I heard it, I had to write in right away in the hopes that of being the only the umpteenth person to comment on the kangaroo's seemingly unmotivated turn to villainy. A turn that's counterclockwise because he's from the south of the equator. Uh, never mind. The kangaroo was being deported, but he would probably be locked up waiting transport. So he'd probably been locked up whilst waiting for the train. He was living where criminals live, going where criminals go, eating what criminals eat. No wonder he felt fated to become a criminal. He'd got to jump on the process. Sorry. <laughs> Do you know, when I read the email to, to prep for this, I didn't get that. that. That's a good gag. Corny, but good. It's always great to hear of your love of Spider-Man comics, and even when you don't love them, it's still great to hear. Well, thank you very much, Jack. That was not one of the best issues of uh, of The Amazing Spider-Man, was it? Damien Lee's back. Damien Lee has uh, retorted to looking back at the palace. Afternoon, Mr. Leyland. My trawl through the back catalogue continues, so I'm sorry to bewilder you by talking about shows that are getting on for five years old, but I want to show my appreciation. 
You've inspired me as I sit here typing endless school reports. Yay. I'm listening to a range of TV theme tunes and have just switched to possibly my favourite Trek theme, Voyager. I just love that theme. It has grace, grandeur and feels perfect what I thought Voyager should have been and sometimes was. Maybe not an exciting theme, but an epic one. Voyager was the first Trek I tried to get into from the ground floor quickly dropped out so maybe that's why it has a special cachet for me but listening to tv themes never done that before saying that five minutes later i've gone done a genre hop and skipped to listen to the lord of the rings soundtrack something i have always wanted to do but never got around to but now if i listen to genre music i'll have to walk the dogs twice as often so i can still listen to you as regularly Loved the Odd Treks team up. I now need to watch them all, so I've ordered the box set from Amazon as a Christmas present for myself. The films I half-watched as a kid when my dad had them on, so I haven't really felt the desire to go back to them, but I must. Your also brilliant Quantum Leap double bill episode had me absolutely pining for it. It was one of the few sci-fi shows that non-geeks ever talked about at school. Though I do remember that a big lad called Lee, one of the alpha males, wouldn't watch because Sam could end up as a woman. <laughs> Some things don't change, do they, Damien? Suffice to say, I'm now watching all the box sets on eBay. I have fond memories of Magnum P.I. and remember seeing lots of episodes, even though I never watched it closely. It was parent telly, not mine. But now I feel I really should. And that theme tune. Your Battlestar Galactica movie episode was great. Did the missus ever come back to co-host? I'm looking forward to finding out, though I really don't feel compelled to dive back into Battlestar Galactica. Hazy memories of the 80s and the face on a planet with a lone Cylon sort of sully it for me. Is it possible not to love the remake, though? Angela came back for the Spartacus episode. And one day we will do a conclusion to that and cover the last two seasons of Spartacus. In the village, the prisoner remains a mystery to me and probably always will. Your Wayne's World episode well, his War of the Worlds, at least, was another great one. I do recall seeing the LPs in charity shops and have definitely heard most of it. I must say, though, I'm a huge fan of the Spielberg film until the denouement. Right up until the scene in Boston, I thought it was masterful, and then suddenly he put a big old bag of sugar over the story. Erwolf was never really on my radar as a kid, and I have to confess to preferring Street Hawk and Knight Rider, but that music... And your loving retrospective was surely more than its creators ever expected. The Last Starfighter review was a lovely episode about a truly awesome film and a great cooperative commentary. TV themes too. The Battlestar Galactica one just carried me back to childhood feelings. What a phenomenal piece of music. Wait, did you really call Babylon 5 the best rip-off of Deep Space Nine? I hope that was intended to wind people up. Yes, yes it was. The Buffy theme though... For all you justify it effectively, I always found it bloody awful, even though I bounced my head along to it. Speaking of which, I thoroughly enjoyed your Buffy Season 1 rewatch, especially as I recently started my own, and just hit the Season 3 premiere. I was unutterably anal through most of my 20s, so despite watching the first three and a half seasons of Buffy religiously, when I missed a couple of Season 4 episodes, I refused to watch the rest until I could see them all in order, meaning I didn't see the rest of the season until the box sets were released. Idiot. I can't wait to get through season 5 through 7 though, as I've only seen most of these once or twice and I'm now excited to refresh my memory. I never really looked at the fight choreography before, so I hope I'm not too critical of it now it's front and centre. Your Lois and Clark Tempest episode is also timely, as I have slowly been dipping my toe back into that show. I may be dead before I get to rewatch and watch everything I want to see, but at least I'll die having wasted countless hours of my life on television shows. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. Our hobby is a waste of time, isn't it? 
Most recently, though, I just finished listening to your hilarious family commentary on Star Wars. Man, what a great way to spend an evening. I got most of my family together for Christmas. I wonder if we should record us watching it. Although there'll be a row before we're 45 minutes in, so probably not the best of ideas. Anyway, I've rambled enough. Suffice to say I'm loving the palace and have recommended it to a bunch of mates and colleagues who fall into your ideal demographic, middle-aged geeks. Thanks as ever for your efforts and generosity of spirit. Even when you don't like something, you don't cruelly tear them apart and always focus on what was done well or the noble intent that was missed. For that reason, I urge you to rewatch Batman vs Superman The Ultimate Edition. Flawed or not, and it is, it deserves the Andy Leyland love. But you know... Don't bother with Suicide Squad. Even I find that one tough to defend. Looking forward to hearing about whatever has taken your fancy next time. Best wishes, Damien Lee. Well, thank you, Damien. I have watched the Batman vs. Superman Ultimate Edition. I kind of find Batman vs. Superman to be pretentious tosh. You know, maybe one day, when all of the Snyder Bronies have given up, I will give it another go. When all of the Royster Snyder Cut stuff has, has gone away as well. Because, you know, I don't, if they want to, I would release the Snyder Cut. If I was in charge of Warner Brothers, I would release the Snyder Cut just so it's out there and those people would shut up. So, you know, get it out there. Because, you know, Superman 2, the Donner Cut didn't exist until it did. So make the Snyder Cut exist, release it, let them watch it. Maybe it's a better film than Justice League. I don't know. We'll see, won't we? Our final email tonight is from Chris and Cindy Franklin. It is always nice to hear from Chris and Cindy Franklin. Hello, Andy. Hello, Chris. Great episode on those wonderful Batman 66 animated films. I was lucky enough to see the first one in the cinema, and I think the rest of my family got as much enjoyment out of having me a stupid grin on my face for over an hour as they did actually watching the film. I don't have much to add other than I agree that these movies captured the spirit of the show, but with a freshness in historical perspective applied to spice things up a bit. I was incredibly impressed with Shatner's Two-Face and think that it's the best acting he's done in years as it's one of the few projects he's been in recently where he's not lampooning himself. I too prefer the first one, but the second film is a fitting sequel and indeed a great way for Adam to bow out of the role. I guess we'll see how Burt does as an aged Dick Grayson and the Crisis on Infinite Earth TV crossover on the CW. Keep up the great work, chum, Chris. Thank you, Chris. I very much enjoyed those two animated movies they were very entertaining very much enjoyed uh re-looking at those and yeah it's dick grayson's cameo that i have seen in the crisis um on infinite earth crossover was really fun including the music but it, there was a little tinge of sadness that adam west wasn't walking alongside him and it's 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 sad that you know adam didn't live long enough to do that because a live action appearance by him as Bruce Wayne one more time, that would have just been fantastic, wouldn't it? Anyway, that's it for this time. As ever, I record this on a Tuesday evening just before I have to go and pick my wife up from work. And that time has occurred right now. As I record this, it is the middle to the end of December. So I'm hoping get this out by 2019 is still a thing. But if I don't, Happy New Year. Hope you all have a great and glorious 2020. God, 2020, that's a science fiction year, isn't it? Who thought we'd see 2020? And I will see you all in the new year and beyond. Take care. Goodbye. The 
drama is human drama. Put the characters in an extreme situation. That would be the cat. Thank you.